Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. This is Adam Ducker, Chief Executive of RCL Co. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCL Co. has been the first call for talented real estate developers like Peter Pappas, who's joining us today, as well as investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies that turn to us for strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment planning and development. We launched this webcast about two years ago, and we call it Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. One of the luxuries of working at RCLCO is we get to sit with really smart people, learn from them, help develop a strategy and or a shared point of view. And it's both rewarding work, great fun. And today I'm delighted to have Peter Pappas join us. Peter is the founder and CEO of Pappas Properties, as well as the CEO of Terwilliger Pappas. And we're going to hear about Peter's career today, so I'll keep the introduction a little bit short. And I'm looking forward to the discussion, Peter. Maybe we'll jump in. We were just chatting earlier about how busy people are. What do you see happening in the multifamily markets right this minute? Well, Adam, first, thank you for asking me to join your podcast. You're very pleased to get some time with you and have enjoyed our relationship with RCL Co. over the years. Look forward to continuing that. It's been really a fascinating year because you think back 12 months ago, we were trying to really assess what's going to happen in the market. Are people going to pay their rent on time or are they going to pay their rent at all? And how are the capital markets going to react to the pandemic, which was an unknown for all of us? You know, I think it was very interesting after what felt like a 60 to 90 day pause while everybody was waiting to see how everyone was going to react to the pandemic. The multifamily space just started to build momentum, which I think has obviously continued to now where really we're seeing one of the best times in this cycle, certainly for selling existing multifamily. And depending on the market you're in, maybe an equally good time to build ground up multifamily based on some of the demographic changes and the immigration in the southeastern market. So it's been a fascinating 12 months because we really didn't know where the market would be in late March or April of 2020. And now we find ourselves in a very good market to be a seller with, you know, a lot of capital looking for a home. And so it's reasonably predictable that with office on pause and the hospitality industry probably the most impacted by the pandemic and certainly the retail industry, which has been experiencing tremendous change during this cycle, that the capital flows would go to multifamily and industrial. So not a total surprise, but maybe a little bit of a surprise how much there is out there that's willing to invest and at seemingly lower cap rates. So we always have that question of what are we capping, which is, is an interesting question. So maybe not to get into the numbers, but just to say certainly that trend has gone down, you know, a good bit over the last six to nine months. And is that because you just see so much capital on the sidelines that that's the, that's the cost of being in the market? the capital wants to be in this market? I think that's that's one of the main reasons. And I think just multifamily has always been the best risk-adjusted return of probably all of the asset classes. 
you look at the tenant improvement dollars, you have to continually invest in those asset classes compared with multifamily or industrial. They're just so significantly less in multifamily and industrial. You can see why the capital gravitates to those food groups and will continue to do so, I think, especially in the Southeast, because certainly we're seeing strong immigration in a lot of the markets that we're active in, which are the Carolinas and Georgia and Tennessee. You are in a favorable spot, right? Just the depth and sophistication of your organization and then, you know, your real mastery in multifamily and then being in these terrific markets. You know, I think there's a lot of attention on the markets now, but but probably from people who don't understand them quite as well. You want to just talk for a minute about how you've seen the sort of urban southeastern markets change over the last decade and why they've been so fruitful and why you like them so much? Well, you mentioned the urban southeastern markets. We haven't always been able to say that we had urban southeastern markets. So it's been great to see whether it's Raleigh or Charlotte or Nashville, Atlanta, the urban areas becoming 24-7 cities with the younger renter who looks for that lifestyle. And so that's created a lot of momentum in those markets. We've got a community under lease up now in West Midtown in Atlanta doing close to 40 leases a month, which is extraordinary for us. I think even coming out of the pandemic, young people still like that very walkable environment with the restaurants, which really have become the amenities, you know, in our businesses. What can I walk to where I can have a great experience? And I think that's as our downtowns have become more experiential, we've attracted that young renter. Or in the case of Charlotte, with the light rail, we've been able to attract a lot of multifamily development along the South Corridor and the Blue Line, as they call it in Charlotte. And because that renter looks for that experience, it drifts into other asset classes, too. I think the retail development, you know, from a retail development perspective, they say that the same thing. It's about experience. This demographic likes experiences. And so it's helped us develop downtown markets that we didn't have 15 years ago. So that's a whole different dimension for the Southeast that wasn't there before. So it's logical we're going to attract more young, talented people to our communities because they've got more options now than they had before. That's the exciting part for all of us who've grown up in the Southeast to really have that dimension that we've never had before. I think you have it right. I mean, attracting that renter, meaning Charlotte and and these other cities we're talking about are attracting the companies that are bringing those renters. And then when the renters come, they are kind of attracted to these very vibrant urban places. Well, they are. In economic development, it's about having the workforce. And if we can't attract the workforce, and some of that is having the kind of product that we now have in the multifamily business that we didn't have 15 or 20 years ago, it all goes hand in hand. And, you know, when you start hearing about young people saying, I just want to, I'm just going to move to Atlanta or Nashville. I don't have a, I don't have a job. I just want to live in Nashville. I just want to live in Atlanta or live in Raleigh. You know, that's a very strong state. It helps on the economic development front because you've got the workforce to track those jobs. So it's, it's been a good combination for us. You know, Peter, I think the first time we worked together was I was on a ULI TAP panel that you were the local chair for looking at one of the light rail corridors. And I just bring it up to say, you know, you've spent a lot of time really participating in the urbanization of these markets. And as a real estate professional, really thinking much more broadly about the city's evolution. That's been part of your business vision all along. It certainly has been part of my interest. I'm very passionate about what we're doing at Twilliger Pappas and, and at Pappas Properties and 
what I always thought the void was is that we, you know, in the Southeast didn't have these kind of mixed use nodes and areas that were exciting and walkable and had the right energy. And so I've spent a lot of my career around trying to create those places. In fact, we like to say we're in the placemaking and community building business. I think back about the work you and I did together back, I want to say that was maybe 2000, so 20 plus years, to just talk about what would that South Corridor look like in Charlotte when the light rail's there. And it's great to see through all that planning and discussion that the combination of the public sector and the private sector were able to come up with a framework that's allowed those corridors to be really successful. So a lot of my interest and passion has always been around thinking about creating the place or building the community. And it starts with having the right framework for development. And I think the cities that spend more time on that obviously are more successful. Maybe let's go back. You grew up in Charlotte. Am I, am I right about that? You're correct. Yes. And what, what brought you into the real estate business? It's like a lot of things, right? You're just lucky to find the right place to land. I always was interested in building and development, construction and land development. And just very fortunately, got an interview after graduating from NC State in 1983, got an interview with the Bissell Companies in Charlotte, which at that time was the leading real estate company in the city and was for many years after that. And our chairman, uh, Smokey Bissell, you know, offered me an opportunity to basically just joined the team at an entry-level position. I, you might say I was in the training program, and that gave me a view. You know, that company was involved primarily in office and business park development, but they also had, through the Harris family, a lot of involvement in the land development business. And so I really got to see how you plan from the start, where you might put roads in, how you might develop a land use plan. And the whole spectrum of the business from development, marketing, underwriting, and we were active in, as I mentioned, in several different asset classes. So coming right out of school, it was the best opportunity you could ever get because you got to see it all. And, you know, Smokey was just such a great teacher and mentor to me. He was a real big believer in understanding the market. I couldn't have started at a better place. President of that company, Johnny Harris, was really ran more of the marketing side of the business. And Johnny was a great civic leader and promoter of Charlotte. So just a lot of positive energy around what we were trying to do. It was a fun place to work. It was an exciting place to work. Smokey ran it like an institution, but we were very entrepreneurial. Two people could get in a room, make a decision to do something. And just being in that room when you're 22 years old was a pretty exciting place to be. So it was just a great start for me. Very lucky to start there. Yeah. And did that mentoring relationship, were you sort of like a rising star or had you sought out that kind of relationship with Smokey? Well, there's no question, you know, I don't know that, that I was a rising star, but I certainly sought out that relationship. And there were many Saturdays that I would show up at the office and he would give me different, Smokey would give me different assignments to work on. And then after I'd finish them, we'd have lunch and talk about them. And that kind of involvement with someone like him, you can't replace that. There's no way to, to get a better look into the business and to really think it through with someone that had done so many things very successfully like he had. Just a tremendous opportunity. And I never felt like I was working when, you know, when he would say, do you want to come in Saturday and take a look at this 
you know, subdivision plan or work on the underwriting on this business park. I, I didn't feel like I was going to work. I felt like, you know, this is this is exciting. This is fun. I'm really taking another step forward in my career. So it was nothing but great is probably the best way I can say it. I love that you use the example of working on Saturday. One of the very common themes in this series of podcasts is people again and again really talk about it was just you, you it wasn't work for you because you loved it, but but it was just people working hard, right? And I tell my kids this all the time, you know, there are plenty of people that are a lot smarter than me. But, you know, finding something you love and really just being willing to put in the time is what seems to make people successful. Well, it does. And those around you, they're going to work hard if you're working hard. If, if your attitude's right, if you're excited about what you're doing and what you're pursuing, that excitement's going to filter through the whole organization. So if you're not here in the room with them, talking it through and working it through, it's hard to be great if you're not they're doing it every day. And as I said, I never felt like it was work. I thought, you know, every day was pretty exciting. And, you know, we uh, just have been very fortunate to have such good teams at all the companies that I've been involved in. You know, we worked hard to make sure everybody had the same vision that we were building communities and places and thinking about the design a little more. You know, we we started thinking about the design in the late 80s and the 90s and, you know, what makes a good storefront, what makes a good public realm. How do you really create community? It's not just the housing. It's all the other things that are part of a community. So it's been great to be able to approach it like that. Not many people have the opportunity to see it from all the different perspectives. And I think that's why I like the mixed use development, which we spent a lot of time in, in the mid nineties and early two thousands, just because you had to approach it that way to, you know, to really create a successful mixed use project. And we like doing that. It's a harder business, I think, in the Southeast because not every site is a mixed use site. So maybe a bit harder to have a sustainable platform if you're just doing mixed use. I enjoyed the residential side of mixed use, whether it was for sale or for lease housing. In the early 90s, we weren't in the apartment business, but we were working on a really interesting project in Charlotte called Phillips Place. And that was one of the early mixed use projects in the Southeast. And it was very interesting how it evolved because we uh, were fortunate to get control of a really excellent site in the South Park area of Charlotte, which is a you know, really strong demographic area. And I had toured some different mixed use projects. Everyone, you know, would go to Country Club Plaza and Lake Forest, but there were a lot of new developments at that time, like Meisner Park. And you could kind of see how they created, whether it was a main street or a public realm and organized the components around that. So we, we had this vision to create you know, a main street and anchor one end of it with a theater and the other end with a hotel and then have retail shops and restaurants and have housing over some of those shops and restaurants. And so as we got into planning this and thinking about it, we realized that there was not a zoning category in Charlotte in 1990. It was either 1992 or 1993 that would accommodate mixed use development in the suburbs. So we put this presentation together and went to see our planning director at that time, Martin Crampton, and laid out this vision. And Martin was a very kind of quiet 
gentleman and very thoughtful. And, you know, we laid it all out and we had done this very kind of cheap and cheerful model of how this place may look. And he didn't say anything for a while. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, we have missed the mark. And after a very long pause, he said, this is exactly what we need to be doing in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I said, Mr. Crampton, we have only one problem. There's not a zoning category where we can do this. And he said, that's that's not a problem. We're going to write one and run it concurrent with your rezoning process. And that's how we got that project going. And fortunately, it was a well-located site where we could attract the really quality retailers and deliver the mixed-use experience. But that was our first project. And, you know, we weren't in the apartment business at that time. So we were very fortunate to joint venture the apartments with Post Properties. It was a, certainly a leader in that space and learned a lot about the apartment business from them. And, you know, as we did more of those projects, we said we really want to be in all the components, residential, retail, hospitality, or office, if there was that component in the mix. So that was a really exciting development and, and opportunity for me and our team. And uh, we had some doubters, you know, we had some people who didn't think that would work. And so every time we'd get a lease executed, it was almost like, hey, you know, it's a celebration. I mean, someone else has, you know, signed on to this vision. It's really what got me going in kind of the mixed use business. I mean, it's a great example because I was actually going to say you were ahead of your time. But really what you were doing was creating a market. Right. You set a level of sophistication and the same with other projects, you know, Cameron Village and Raleigh and you know, other projects and other markets that are now the sophisticated markets in the southeast. I mean, these kind of signature developments helped create that transformation. Well, they did. And, and it was it was always interesting to me that, you know, when we did a really good job with connectivity, just how much more. You, know, you take Burkdale Village, which is a project we joint ventured with the Carlson Company, Carlson Group, back in the early 2000s. And you look at the housing that was walkable to Burkdale Village and just how much it appreciated in value because of the placement. It really set a new level for those markets. And there's a lot of fun to be part of that. I know around that time or thereafter, you struggled with whether to go out on your own and, and you chose to go out on your own and start your own company. How old were you when you did that, if you don't mind my asking? 38, I believe. It was a big leap of faith, but I just felt like that was the formula that would be, that's where the market wanted to go. And if we could execute that type of multi-use or mixed-use environment that you know we could really do something exciting for the communities we work in. And that's always been really important to me. I've always felt like our projects should be viewed as an asset to the communities we work in and that we should deliver better design and better planning so that it helps the areas that we're building in. We probably take a long time on some of our deals because we spend more time on that. But I think that's a real differentiator for us. I went out on my own in 1999, and that's about the same time that I met um, Ron Twilliger, who was chairing the Urban Land Institute. I'd been somewhat active in ULI, but we didn't have a local district council. So Art Fields, one of my really good friends, who at that time was the chairman of Crescent Resources, 
Art and I and Henry Faison were talking about we should start a district council in Charlotte. I believe this is the way it happened, that Henry looked at me and said, Pappas, you're right. We should start one, and you should be in charge of it, and Art and I will help you, which they did. And so they let me be the first chair, although I had no idea what I was doing. But I had two really good mentors there, and Ron was chairing ULI, and somehow he decided that he wanted to come into our kickoff meeting in, you know, our kickoff, our Charlotte kickoff meeting. And I just remember thinking, well, this is great. I don't really know what I'm doing. So I called Henry. He was out of town. Art was out of town. I said, this is getting even better. You know, nobody's nobody's around. The head of ULI is coming in. I don't quite understand the whole program here. Fortunately, we had a really good kickoff. We had about 100 people to get this district council started. I knew a little bit about Ron. I also knew that, you know, he had served in the Navy and my dad had gone to the Citadel, so I knew a lot about punctuality. So I was about an hour early to pick him up when he got into town, and we had a little extra time on our hands. And I said, well, what would you like to do? And he said, well, show me a deal. So we drove over and went through Phillips Place. And that started a really great friendship back then through ULI that later led to you know, us forming Twilliger Pappas, in 2013 and building a market rate apartment development company. And you were doing all asset types and a mixed-use development. Right. During that time was when you kind of became increasingly interested in multifamily? Right. Well, we did, you know, we were interested in it as part of the mixed-use projects we were doing. And I think, you know, as we built some of those developments, it, it was just apparent that in the Southeast, it would be hard to build a development company just around mixed use. So in 2011 and 12, I was really thinking that we needed to transition into doing more market rate multifamily on a standalone basis. And, you know, as I mentioned, Ron and I were good friends and we were talking about the business. He was retiring as the CEO of Trammell Crow Residential and had done such a incredible job building that organization into the largest apartment company in the country. And he said, you know, I'm retiring, but I'm still going to want to be active in the business. So stay in touch with me. Show me some of the things you're thinking about doing. And I had been fortunate enough to partner up with Alan Dean, who was in Atlanta. Alan was helping me get into the multifamily business in a bigger way. We showed Ron a project in Raleigh, which he invested in. And as we were working through that, he said, it might be interesting to think about doing this more on a formal basis. And I guess maybe in a period of about 30 or 45 days, we put together the framework for Twilliger Pappas. And Alan came on board as one of our region presidents. And Tom Barker joined us shortly thereafter. And then Bill McNeil, who had worked with me, the Harris Group came on board as our CFO and that became our senior leadership team. And, you know, we spent a lot of, we put a lot of thought and time into building a team and started building, you know, multifamily in Charlotte, Raleigh and Atlanta. And uh, that's been a, a really exciting venture for us because we've put a premium on, as I mentioned earlier, design and quality and best in class execution. We said early on, we said, we're not going to be, in all, in all aspects of the business. We're going to focus on development. We're going to let those that are good at property management and leasing do that for us. And we're going to 
think of them as a strategic partner. We're going to think of our general contractors as a strategic partner, but we're really going to focus on the development side of the business. And so we started in February of 2013. And over the last eight years, we've started 30, 31 projects. And it's just been great to have this this very talented group of partners and associates who want to really be the best at the development business. And so we're having a good time doing that. Fortunately, are in a good, as you mentioned earlier, in a really good place being in the Southeast. So uh, it's been it's been busy, but it's been really enjoyable. So many companies that were like to Williger Pappas or what you or wanted to be like to Williger Pappas have sort of like tried to, you know, integrate into other businesses, property management and, and effectively asset management. And you've really stuck to the the builder developer model, you know, so-called merchant builder model. And I think it's a good story in sort of sticking to your knitting as, as you say, building a team that really understands the business plan and can go out and execute. Have you consciously, I mean, I kind of know the answer to this, but I want to talk about sort of consciously resisting the temptation to be you know, pulled away from that strategy? Every now and then. But then you go back to what gets you up early in the morning. And for me, it's still finding that great site and bringing the team together and, you know, bringing a talented consulting team to the table with us and thinking about how to do it, you know, in a way that really, as I mentioned, adds value to the community and also creates a, you know, really great product. And so we just stay focused on that. So every now and then you might think about some of the other aspects of our business, but I just keep coming back to what I like to do every day. And I think what everybody around me likes to do every day. And so if everyone's focused on that and their attitude's great, you're going to be very successful. And we're just not going to drift from our our mission. I think that's probably the best way to be. Over this kind of last you know, five, seven years, you've also really done, I think, a great job around branding a lot of the product, maybe all the product you develop as, as Solus. And can you talk a minute or two about, you know, how you sort of approach that kind of branding process and how you think about the, the brand and image of your product today and going forward? Well, you're nice to recognize that. When Alan and I got together and Tom Barker, you know, we talked about fundamentally when you think about great residential, it has great natural light. The spaces are bright. They're easy to walk through. The, the furniture lays out well in the room. The, the spaces are, you know, are sized appropriately. You think about the places you go every day. You go to your front door every day. You go into your bathroom every day. So you start to think about what you're touching, what you're seeing, how you want that space to feel. So from a design perspective, you know, we we wanted to make sure we designed a really good unit from the inside. We landed on Solus as the brand, as the Latin word for light. And, you know, we carry that thought then to the exterior elevation and think about how that neighborhood that we're building in looks today or maybe where it aspires to be and try to let our design follow that lead. And we said we're really almost trying to build a custom apartment community, not a commodity type product. That's how we have positioned the brand. And that's why I think as you look at our product, all of those communities look a bit differently and we really work hard to try to make them fit in 
to the areas that we're building in. The industry has now followed you, but you were early. You know, you had spent all this time mastering, you know, higher density development in the core. And I think you were early in the last cycle and saying, hey, I think there's an opportunity to take sophisticated product like this, design driven, and move to the suburbs, even deep into the suburbs. And you were you were ahead of the curve by far in doing that. It felt like to us that really the barriers in our business were in the suburbs. You know, almost every site on the infill, every piece of property in the infill was a potential site. But you really think about these very attractive suburban locations, and they usually have very nice housing around them. Uh, what the residents that are there usually want are more services. And so you've really got to do a great job with your plan and your design to get the entitlements. But that's where the barriers. So we started shifting in 14 and 15 to a, what we refer to as a suburban replace strategy, where we could get close to restaurants or grocery stores or walkable, preferably to them. That became our strategy and still is a big part of our strategy. And in a lot of our markets, we've seen the smaller municipalities around Atlanta, for instance, a lot of them are really seeking that kind of suburban with place environment. So we've tried to strategically partner with some of them to get those good locations where they're trying to maybe recreate and redevelop their downtown or create a suburban walkable environment. That's uh, worked well for us. Harder sites to get, more challenging to get the entitlements, but I think that's been uh, a good place for us. We don't ignore the urban areas. We've done a fair amount of infill development, have really an exciting project we're getting ready to break ground on in Charlotte that has a bit of a health and wellness component to it. And think that that will be an important component of probably all types of housing to a degree. Our business is always evolving and changing changes very quickly. And so we're thinking about maybe what does our what do our residents want going forward? They've always wanted good service. They've always wanted good amenities. That's a given. But what are the other things that will make their lifestyle even better? And so maybe it's more spaces that open indoor and outdoor. Maybe it's better air filtration in the units or air circulation. Maybe it's a meditation room instead of another gathering space. But a lot of a, a lot of change in the product, you know, and very quick change, I think, over the last five or six years. Now, I know you guys spend a lot of time thinking about this. The uptick in, you know, for sale housing or maybe single family housing, whether it's for rent or for sale, do you think about that as being part of the pandemic or a structural change? Are you doing something different with your business based on that outlook? Maybe we're overthinking it, but it's, it, it is a bit of a complex issue. I mean, it's still relatively hard to get a mortgage for a lot of people, yet the single family builders are the busiest they've been in some time. Uh, and yet we are very busy with the amount of product we're, we're delivering. It's hard to tell if the pandemic has just really heightened the interest in maybe having a bit more space and a more of a single family environment. Certainly the single family for lease, those doing that product type would say that that's a big part of it. But I do think the flexibility that leasing offers 
has become so much more attractive to a lot of America. You know, whether it's a single family home or an apartment, I think people like that flexibility. It's hard to tell how much of a trend it is to think about single family for sale growing and becoming a bigger part of the market. It certainly has over the last year. Some of that has to have been driven by the pandemic. But I do think in the long run, people like optionality and flexibility. Certainly the young generation likes that. And I think the mature renter didn't have, you know, the quality of product in the for lease space that they have now. So while they wouldn't have considered leasing an apartment, now because the product has evolved so well, it's become a viable option. When we used to build a new community and we'd show some of our older friends, maybe just, you know, tour them and all that, they were like, this isn't my perception of an apartment at all. This isn't what I think of an apartment. So as, as we've been able to change that, I think more mature renters have said this is probably a pretty good option for me. Are you open to talking about your your explorations in the active adult rental business and what you're planning on doing there? We are. We've had some discussions with uh, one of our strategic partners, Well Tower, about senior living and how we might develop a senior apartment uh, community and what would make that attractive to the 55 plus market uh, and are actually actually have a site that we have acquired in Raleigh and are actively working on some plans to do our first project there. And, um, you know, that's been a really good exercise for us. Well, Tower is a large owner of senior housing across the country, so they bring a depth of experience to the table. And it's been um, a really good combination to have their experience operating and owning that type of housing and our team's experience developing, you know, really best in class community. So we're looking forward to breaking ground in the next year on this first project. And I think there's more to do in that space. We'll have to see what the depth of the market is, but there's certainly more to do there. Yeah. And are you thinking about it as almost like a different business than Solus? Or? I think we would definitely brand it differently than Solus. I think we've established the Solus brand as really a market rate apartment brand. I think here we would brand the senior communities differently, probably with some connection to Well Tower uh, and a bit of the health and wellness aspect of that product. So uh, certainly do it differently, design it a little differently. And, you know, this programming would be different, but there's a growing market there. The challenge is how do you deliver it at a price point to reach a lot of that market? That's really, to me, the hardest part of that exercise, the, the very expensive senior housing for lease, you know, appeals to a very narrow market. I think we we're trying to go down a bit into a broader market and uh, with cost being the big challenge today for anything you're doing, uh, that makes it even harder with the senior product. In senior and in conventional multifamily or maybe just even in the mixed use work that Pappas Properties does, what, where do you think your footprint will expand to, if at all, in the next five, 10 years, your Today, mostly focused on Atlanta, Charlotte, and Raleigh. I know you've danced around some other markets in the Southeast. We have. We've done business in Nashville, Adam, as you know, and uh, like that market a great deal. I think Florida would be 
obviously the next step for us. We're looking at a project in Virginia right now, more of the Tidewater area. But I think Florida would be the natural expansion for us. We've just broken ground on our first project north of Charleston, South Carolina, in Somerville. It's part of the next and master plan community. We're excited to be down there. Certainly been a, a lot of job growth north of Charleston with Boeing and Volvo. And we saw opportunity there and just wanted to enter the market with the right site. So glad to add that market to our business plan. For us, it's having boots on the ground. That's always been fundamentally part of our plan. We want team members that are in that market, that know the market, understand the municipality. We don't aspire to be a fly-in, fly-out developer. We want to have a team on the ground. And so we'll grow as we add team members that can execute at the quality level we need them to. As you think about the Southeast, there there's so many areas around the markets we're in now that maybe you wouldn't have considered 10 years ago, but because of whether it's immigration or just our, our new job announcements have now become very popular. I mentioned the Northern you know, suburbs of Atlanta. We're building and coming in Gainesville, well north of Atlanta. Um, so, you know, there's still a lot of opportunity around the, the markets we're in. So uh, I think you'll see this in Florida at some point in the, in the future. You know, when in 1999, when you started your own company, did you relish the idea of being a leader and running an organization? Or was that necessary step, maybe a necessary evil to to kind of being in the development business? Well, I think to a degree, everyone aspires to to a degree to run their own organization and to lead an organization. And there's a level of excitement about that. There's also a tremendous level of responsibility around that. And when you kind of jump from being part of a partnership or part of a development company to leading it, you start thinking about, the well-being of everyone that's part of your team, it's it's a, it's a lot to think about. And to say that that doesn't keep me up at night sometimes would be really wrong. It does. But I think it's it's like a lot of things in life. You do them because you're, that's where your passion and your interest is. You find other people who have similar interest and enthusiasm for what you're doing. And I think as long as you create a really open dialogue with your team, everybody's kind of in it together. And I think my strategy has always been to be very transparent and really talk about where we are, talk about where the business is, be candid about the hurdles so that no one goes down the road with us that doesn't understand the, you know, that there's risk, a lot of risk in the development business. But if we're smart about managing that risk and if we're in the right markets and if we've got the right team at the table, we should be able to do fairly well. And that's how we've kept it simple. It's about the people. It's about being in the right markets. And it's been, you know, maybe taking a more conservative approach to underwriting than we used to in the past. It's kind of, it's sometimes it's hard to think back about, you know, we used to do a spec office building with 90% financing. And now, you know, in one of the safest asset classes of multifamily, your senior loans usually at 60 or 65%. So it's so much different than it was in the 80s and 90s that I remember those days very well. And that's why when we look at it now, it feels like that constraints of the financial markets 
have put a lot of discipline in our business that maybe there wasn't there 30 years ago. So that helps. Is there a way or maybe uh, something that comes to mind when you think about how your leadership style has changed over the years or how you're different as a leader than you were 10 or 20 years ago? I think I try to be a better listener. I'm not so sure I was a very good listener early on. And, uh, you know, we're just lucky to have such a talented group of team members. Sometimes that may make the meeting a little longer than people like. And sometimes people may feel like we're going a little slow on some of these decisions. But nonetheless, that's, you know, how we build, you know, the right product is to get the input and really think it through from everybody. You know, when we think about building an apartment community, we're talking first with the management companies. What are the residents? What do they like in that submarket? Not just what are the rents? What does the product need to have? What's appealing to them? You know, and it kind of goes back to maybe what I mentioned earlier about really understanding the market. So to me, that's the first step. You got to be a good listener. And that takes a little bit of time. And it's not as much fun as just calling the architects and saying, hey, we got this site. Let's let's develop a 275 unit plan for it. You, you start with that kind of market recon to really understand what you need to build to meet that market. So you got to be a better listener and you got to have process, which, again, isn't as much fun. It's just diving right in. So I think over time, developing the processes have been very important to how we're operating the company and just not getting ahead of ourselves and miss any of those really important steps early on. Even though we talk to a management company, we turn to you right away to do a market study. And it's because it's all about the market. So that's the process that we like to go through. And then stick to our, as you mentioned earlier, stick to our knitting of what we can do well and focus on that. You know, I think the other piece of it is just thinking about as a leader, bringing our strategic partners into the fold with us, whether it's our GC or our marketing and management company, leasing company, our civil engineers, getting all those people at the table early and make them feel like part of the team and part of the success of what we're doing and continuing to do business with them on different projects. So it's all about, it's about leadership, but it's also about partnership. Well, I think you are uniquely talented at that. And it, I'm sure it gets, it goes a long way towards building loyalty and getting really high performance out of people. Well, you're kind to say that. I don't know how talented I am, but you're very nice to to say that. Maybe last question. We talked earlier about the difficulty in sort of juggling civic commitments and work commitments. I know your family is very important to you. We've talked about this in the past. How do you juggle all that you're doing and 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 being such a strong family man at the same time? My family has always been the most important thing to me. They've always supported me in everything I've tried to do. And I think that's why we're all so close is because we support each other in what, you know, in what we're trying to do. How do you juggle it? I think you always stick to your priorities. It's your family. It's your community. It's your your team. And when you really like what you do, you, you find time to do it. You know, I think the hardest thing is just not taking on too much. You know, the markets are good. You're always thinking about growing your business, but you can only do so much. And I think that's the 
the hardest thing is kind of ratcheting back to say, all right, what is the right number of projects we can start this year with the team we have and how much time do I really have for civic projects and in, in, in other areas of interest that don't erode my time with my family because that would not work for me to, to let that overrun that. And uh, even though I work a lot because I like it, uh, I still feel like I always have a lot of time for my for my family and my community. And to some degree, you know, my hobbies aren't what they used to be. My hobbies are what we're doing in, you know, with the company and with our product and taking going on a Saturday and touring you know, what our competitors are doing or looking at a site or when we're in another market going out to see, you know, the best product there. You know, that's that's what I enjoy doing. Luckily, my son enjoys going with me on a lot of those trips. We have a lot of good discussions about that. My wife, maybe not quite as much. She maybe will hang in there for one or two tours. And then I think that might might exhaust her. <laughs> level of interest but you know luckily i've always got someone who wants to go with me and we you know we have a great time talking about it and um you know even our some of our consultants you know will go work on projects with us on a saturday because they just feel like that good uninterrupted time when you really can focus and go out on the site and talk about how the plan ought to be and it's you know that doesn't as i mentioned that doesn't feel like work to me and uh you know that's what I enjoy. So that's what I'm going to keep doing. Well, keep doing it. That's probably the right note on which to wrap up the conversation. I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. And my goodness, I'm honored that you asked me to. Again, I you know want to thank you and Gotti and the rest of your team for you know all the great things you've done for us over the years. And uh, certainly, where we've been successful is because of our strategic partnership with you and. Um, that's something we look forward to continuing and really appreciate you, you know, asking me to be part of this. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for doing it and continued good luck. You probably don't need luck, but you'll take it if you can get it right. We'll always take it. We'll always take it. Thank you so much, Adam. Take care, Peter. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you're interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCL Co. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.